You're listening to the 2020 Central Texas Men's Conference. This year's speaker was Peter Reed. Learn more at centraltexasmc.com. As I was thinking about this evening, I thought of a gal from Wisconsin who came to our school and she attended Bodensdorf for six months. Bodensdorf is like a spiritual emphasis week. It's just 24 weeks in a row. And we have speakers from all over the world come and expound the Word of God and it's just a saturation in the Word of God and the Son of God. And this gal came to us for 24 weeks and then she attended our spring term in Austria and I went there for a week to teach that spring. And at the end of the week, I was about to go to the train station to go home and she ran up to me and she said, I got to tell you something. I said, what is it? She said, I just wanted you to know that the last week of Bible school, I was born again and I received Jesus. And I said, thank you so much for telling me that. It's so encouraging. And it also teaches me that she, like Nicodemus, was somebody who knew the Word of God, but not the God of the Word. She had been living among the children of God without being a child of God. She knew Christians, but not yet Christ. And it was wonderful to hear that. And she's not alone. This is probably the first verse in the Bible that ever made sense to me. And it's found in John chapter 3, and it's found in that conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And Jesus said to that man, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Do you know that it says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we need to realize that God loved me at my worst. So I don't need to try and be my best to earn his love. Because the reason of the love of God towards me does not exist in me, it exists exists in him. His love is a perfect love. His love is an unconditional love. And when I was his enemy and when I was a sinner and when I was helpless and godless, he demonstrated his love towards me and that Christ died for me. I was sitting with a bunch of my guy friends and we were bragging about stories and the topic was when we each got robbed. I don't know if that's worth bragging about, but we were just being guys. And he told me that in his state, the law says, if somebody breaks into his home and steals his cell phone, takes it to a pawn shop, takes the cash, leaves the phone there, and then I come to that pawn shop 
and can identify and prove that that cell phone is mine because I type in the code and I can reference some of the people on the phone list, I have to buy it back in order to get it. And I said, that's not fair. Did you know that Jesus came into this world to do the exact same thing? He came into the pawn shop of this world to buy back what was rightfully his in the first place. That is how much he loves us. His love is so powerful, so deep. He is crazy about you and, he, you and I. And you know, sometimes we talk about a person who doesn't let, yet know Jesus as lost. Well, did we ever figure out that God lost something that he wants back? He wants me. God lost me. And so the creator came, became the redeemer to come back and buy back what was rightfully his in the first place. That's how much he loves us. And if he loved me at my worst, I don't have to try and be my best to deserve his love. The reason for his love for me lies in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but go to heaven. If that's what your Bible says, you have a bad translation. The offer of the gospel is not going to heaven. Going to heaven is evidence that you've received the gospel. But the offer of the gospel is eternal life. And eternal life is not a place I go after I die. Eternal life is a person who enters me before I die. And when you have eternal life before you die, you have an eternal home after you die. The offer of the gospel is eternal life. It's a person, not just a place. Christian life is about... Receiving Christ's life, not trying to imitate it. The Christian life is not just about making bad men good, but about making dead men alive. How does this take place? Well, I brought a verse tonight on the overhead or on the PowerPoint. And I think I'm on pretty solid ground when I say if anybody knew how to become a Christian, Christ did. <laughs> and the first sermon he preached in Mark's gospel is found in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. The gospel is a person. The gospel is a person who comes to live in me before I die so that I have an eternal home after I die. And the one who died for me wants to come and live in me. 
to begin a process of renewal from the inside out so that I have another option so that I don't have to do the things that just pile shame after shame after shame on me. God is a God of love. And love must leave enough room for free choice. Otherwise, it wouldn't be love. And so Jesus comes and he preaches the gospel and he says, first of all, repent. And to repent means to change your mind. Just means to change your mind. You know, we don't like to change our minds. We make a decision, we make a commitment, and then to change our mind, that makes us look bad. We don't like changing our mind. Oh, did you hear that Peter was going to go to the men's retreat and then he changed his mind? Doesn't put us in a good light sometimes. But repentance is a call to change your mind. When I was a kid, uh, we discovered at an early age that I have very strong allergies and asthma. And we discovered this when I was in grade school. And I don't know if it was pollen, dust, mold, or the dog. But I woke up in the middle of the night and I had such a strong allergic reaction to whatever it was in the house that my eyes swelled shut. It looked like I was a boxer in a fight. And I couldn't get my eyes open. Mom was a single mom at that time with four kids at home. And I kind of feel my way down the hall and I stand at her bed and I said, Mom, I can't get my eyes open. That woman said to me, neither can I go back to bed. So a little, you know, <laughs> obedient little boy that I was, I went back to bed. I lay there for a little bit. I go a second time. Mom, I can't get my eyes open. She said, it's 2 a.m. You're not supposed to have your eyes open. Go back to bed. Then mother instinct kicked in. She came in, turned on the light, felt horrible. Next day we were at the doctor and I was on asthma medication and allergy shots until I was about 18 years old. Then the doctor said, listen, you don't need this anymore. You're good to go. So I got off all the medication for about three years. Then my senior year of college, the family wanted to go to uh, Ravencrest Chalet, the Torchbearer Center out in Estes Park, Colorado, on ski vacation. We drove out there from Minneapolis. And before we left, I thought I got kind of a cough. I didn't realize it at the time, but my asthma came back with a vengeance. And you drive from Minneapolis to Denver, you get to the Mile High City, and then you go even further up to Estes Park. And I was having troubles. And you get up to that altitude, but doggone it, I'm going to ski. <laughs> but it got so bad that my fingernails turned blue and my lips turned blue. We went to the emergency room. And he gave me this, this, this little apparatus, it's called Peak Flow. Some of you doctors know what it is. He said, Mr. you just blow in there as hard as you can. And I went, and moved the little ball about like that. He just shook his head. He said, you have a lung capacity of a small girl. It's about time you got in here. 
He said, you know, people like you, you let that go on long enough at this altitude, you could suffer brain damage. It's probably what you think happened, but he told me it wasn't. And so <laughs> I was okay, but I never went skiing. I spent the rest of that vacation in the hospital. Went back on medication. You go in my room, there are three inhalers there and cortisone tablets, and at home I have an inhaling machine. I'm thankful that I can stand here and talk for 45 minutes without a break. That week in Colorado, I did something very biblical. I changed my mind. (laughs) I, I said, you know what? I can't live this way anymore. But I got a problem. I don't have what it takes to change. And I turned 180 degrees and at that point went to the only one who could give me what I needed. You know, you're in the condition that I was. Hmm. Ski, live. (laughs) You change your mind. Friends, that's repentance. You come to a point in your life, you say, Lord, I don't want to live this way anymore. And I'm helpless to help myself. I don't want this anymore. And come what will, I'm going to change my mind. Whatever consequences come upon this, I understand you're going to be worth it. And so you come and you turn 180 degrees and you come in your helplessness to Jesus. That's repentance. And it's interesting, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, all true faith is preceded by repentance. Sometimes what we're trying to do is trust Christ without ever repenting. And what's happening is is we we don't want the change. We want the place... We say, yeah, I'll trust Jesus, but I don't have a lick of interest in the change that he wants to bring into my life. And then later on, after we've supposedly trusted Christ, we can't figure out why things haven't changed. I never wanted it. The offer of the gospel is to invite a person to come in and take over. And he imparts his eternal life into you and me. And that is a very precious gift. True repentance leaves you with no other option but to come helpless to Jesus. I I like the German phrase... It talks about trusting Christ. We say, Ich verlasse mich auf Jesus. It means I'm, I've left myself over to Jesus. And when we've done that, when we come to that place where we say, Lord, I come in my helplessness to you, at that point we can exercise faith. And probably the best definition I ever heard of faith 
is this one. Faith is a disposition of heart that lets somebody else do something for you. Faith is letting God do something for you. Now, as simple as that sounds, we have huge problems with that. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1, God cries to his people through the the prophet Isaiah, and he says, You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. God says, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That does not make sense. I have a friend, he is a uh, designer for Mercedes. And there are a bunch of security doors that he needs to go through when he goes to work because they're developing the new series of Mercedes. And he does it in, you know, a clay model like this and then, you know, like life-size. He called me up one day and he said, listen, I've got a test car and I need to put a certain number of kilometers on it this weekend. Can I come down and we can give it a ride together? I said, does a one-legged duck swim in circles? Of course you can come down here. (laughs) So so I get in in the passenger seat and he flicks this little switch and I'm getting a massage. There's a screen on the panel. He's looking at the navigation here, and I'm watching TV here, but there's no split in the screen. He says, you see those little sensors up there? If my eyelids start to fall too far, it beeps and wakes me up. I said, I have one question. How much is this car going to cost? He said about 165,000 euros. I said, I'll never have a car like that. (laughs) I could never afford that. Do you know in the kingdom of God, his economy doesn't work that way? The currency in the kingdom of God is called need, not have. And you come to Jesus and you say, Lord Jesus, my need need is huge. Like we just heard in the wonderful testimony tonight. Lord, I need you so bad. He says, that is exactly the currency I accept. There's one person for whom Jesus can do nothing tonight. And that's the person who senses no need in their life for him. The greatest blessing that God can give to a man is the knowledge of his need for Jesus. But what is it about my heart that just resists somebody doing something for me? I'm sitting at camp here in the dining hall and somebody says, can I go get you a dessert? Do you know what my knee-jerk reaction is? Don't worry about it. I can do it myself. It's humbling to receive something for nothing. But that's what Jesus asks us to do. 
That's why he said, let the children come to me for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And growth and disposition in the kingdom of God is backwards towards the crib. You just learn how to become increasingly more dependent upon him. In the natural world, the growth process is from a position of dependence towards increasing independence. In the kingdom of God, we come into it with an attitude of independence. I can do this. And we have to learn dependence. I played tennis in college and gave lessons. And I always found it easier to teach somebody how to play tennis who had never held a racket in their hand than somebody who tried to teach themselves and had had developed all kinds of bad habits along the way. Because at the same time they had to learn the right way, they had to unlearn the wrong way, and it gets messy. That's kind of like life in Christ. It's a wonderful verse in my translation, which is the New American Standard. It says in Romans 9.33, He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Isn't that wonderful? Romans 9.33, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Remember what what we talked about when we talked about the wind and how the wind is invisible, but that which the wind touches, moves, and you see the effect of wind. And I showed you the picture of the Bodense and the wind and the kite surfers. I just want to mention three things that are going to happen when Christ enters into my being. Three things that I can expect when the one who died for me comes to live in me by his spirit. Number one, I have a freedom to call God my father. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, Scripture says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. When the Son of God enters into me by His Spirit and makes me into a child of God, God becomes a personal Father. If my friend Tom Wright, who's here and I met this weekend, if my father came into the back of this auditorium and Tom runs over to him, gives him a big bear hug and lifts him and shakes him up and dad, oh dad, it's great to see you. I look forward to some brisket because I know you're going to pay for it. Oh, it's great to have you here, dad. My dad would say, what kind of a psychiatric ward is this place? Tom would never call my dad father. It'd be very uncomfortable for him to do that. Me? I can do that. I'd run up to him, give him a bear hug, shake him up and down and say, I look forward to some brisket because in the back of my mind, I know he's going to pay. Do you know it's interesting? When it comes to prayer, I've noticed that some people are very uncomfortable with the idea of praying. Sometimes it's because they can't call God their father. 
and they would wonder, who is this one? And would he even want to hear me? Do you know when you're born again by the Spirit of God and you become a child of God, God is not some impersonal power. He's a loving Father and you know someone who cares and he loves to hear us. We, we've got loads of kids being born at our staff, uh, among our staff at Bodensiov. And uh, it's great to have the small kids around. You, you see them take their first steps. And one of the things that we, we see them do or hear them do, better said, is speak their first words. And it's amazing, you know, what a one or two-year-old can get me to do. I'll get down on my hands and knees like a dog in front of this kid and, and just start making faces and all kinds of goofy sounds. And one day, Zephora, we call her Zippy, she said my name. And I said, did you hear that? She said my name. I'm not even her father. I get excited about that. I have a funny feeling that our Heavenly Father loves to hear us speak to Him. And do you know, when you become a child of God, that is the most natural thing in the world to do. Prayer becomes a conversation with your Heavenly Father. Why wouldn't you speak to Him? Secondly, not only do we have freedom to call God Father, But we acquire an awareness of the presence of God in our lives. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, it says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you know when you become born again by the Spirit of God, you'll know the presence of God in your life? At our schools, we have students at Bodensio from 10 to, different, 10 to 15 different countries every year. And we've got to fill out a stack of bureaucratic forms for the German authorities in our city. And one year, a guy named Jim came from Nigeria, and he'd come a little bit later, so I was in my office filling out these forms with him. And we started on form number one, and I said, put in your name, your address, your nationality, and put in your birth date right there. He filled everything in, but when he got to his birthday, he stopped. I said, listen, Jim, in Europe, we do day, month, year. I don't know how you do it in your country, but it's day, month, year in our country. He didn't write anything down. I said, Jim, I got a lot to do. Just write down your birthday, and we're good to go. And he looked at me and he said, Peter, I don't know the day I was born because our country doesn't keep track of those details. You don't need to know your date of birth to know you're alive. If you came up to me after this session and said, Peter, how do you know you were ever born? I'd say I'm conscious that I'm alive, thank you. I can't remember the day I was born, and probably I should be thankful for that. It's probably pretty traumatic. But I do know, do know I was born because I'm conscious that I'm alive. 
And when you're born again by the Spirit of God, you become conscious of the presence of God in your life. You know that you know that you know that you know you're a child of God. And from that day forward, you will never have to ask Jesus back into your life because he never leaves you. It is nonsense. As a child of God who's been born again by the Spirit of God to ask Jesus to come back when he never left. And Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never, no, never, no, never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said the Spirit of God, John 14, 16, will be with you forever. Do you know what happened to me and it happened within the context of the church? I had educated myself in unbelief in regards to the presence of Christ in my life. Because I started to say things like at the end of the church service, Lord, please go with us into this new week. Amen. Go to a worship service and they would say, Lord, we invite you into our presence tonight. What? I had taught myself more to reckon with the absence of Christ from my life rather than the presence of Christ in my life. Faith says thank you, not please. And once I receive Christ Jesus, he comes to stay for time and eternity. And when he feels like he's a million miles away, don't ask him to come back because he never left. Just say thank you. Thank you. And when you're born again by the Spirit of God, you have a person living in you for the rest of your life who will never leave you or forsake you. Everywhere, in every situation, he lives in us. Lastly, when the Spirit of God comes to enter into my life, There's a transformation that takes place and there will be an increasing likeness to the Son of God in my life. It says in 1 John 2.29, if you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. What happens when the Spirit of God comes into our being And and he enters into my person with his person. He begins a transformation process from the inside out. He begins to transform my desires and my motives. He, He begins to transform the way that I make decisions. It is a transformation from the inside out. My niece, Victoria, was born around Christmas time, and that year we had Christmas in the hospital. And her maternal grandmother, my sister-in-law's mother, came into the room, looked at Victoria, and she said, oh my gosh, she's a spitting image of my daughter. Look at that. You can see it in the eyes, the ears, the nose. I mean, the baby looks like this. (laughs) And she claims 
that she can see those characteristics. Well, the paternal grandmother came in. My mom saw that same baby and said, it's a spitting image of my son. You can see it in the eyes, the ears. (laughs) Things get a little bit tense, and then we, you know. Who was right? Probably both. Is that obvious immediately? Grandmother thinks so. But with time, you begin to see the image of the parents and the child. And that's something that the Spirit of God begins to do in our lives. He reproduces his character. And he does that by a transformation of our desires and our motives out of which we live. The scripture calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We've got three rooms at Bodenseehof with ten people in each room. Our African students walk into those rooms and they say, What? Only nine other people in here? This is fantastic. (laughs) Students from California come into that same room. They say, what? (laughs) Nine other people in here? But Peter, I'm working on my patience. I smile inside. I'm saying, go ahead and work on your patience. You'll just figure out what an impatient person you are. It's called the fruit of the spirit, not the fruit of the saint. Patience is a miracle. Patience is the character, the person of Christ who lives within me. And if I would come bankrupt and in my repentance say, Lord, look at what an angry, impatient person I am. He'd say, great, that's exactly the currency I accept. Now let me do in you what you can't do for yourself. Would you let me do it? He will always reproduce according to his own kind. And by the way, most often that will happen without us really being aware of it. If I am conscious of my own righteousness, it's self-righteousness, and self-righteousness stinks. The work of the Spirit is uh, almost unconscious. What I'm conscious of is my need for him to do it constantly, and I come bankrupt Paul said, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And if I would walk in the way that I have received him, he will begin to do that transformational work. Are those things to fear, by the way, that would happen in my life if I received Jesus? That I would be able to call God my father? that I would have a consciousness of his presence and he would begin to transform me and empower me from the inside out to live differently. 
What's there to fear in that? So what do I have to do, Peter? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him. And that two-letter word in is very important. It's not just a, a general belief in a bunch of theological facts. It's a belief in a person. Sometimes at Bodensee, two people of the opposite gender get to know one another, and sometimes they even get married. It's kind of like a shoe factory. You come in single and they go out as a pair. If some guy came up to me and said, Peter, I'm getting married. And I said, to who? And he said, no idea. I'm just getting married. I'd say, you haven't, you haven't really understood something here. Very, very important. You got to get married to somebody. We believe in Christ. And do you know the German word for one of them for belief or trust is the word vertrauen, and it, and it contains the same word that we would use when two people get married. Sie trauen sich. They get wed to one another. Friends, when I got married to my wife, and Gerhard Hegel, the pastor, stood at the altar, and Gabi and I were standing there, and he asked me first, Peter, do you take Gabi to be your lawfully wedded wife? And I said, yes. And at that point, she runs out of the church and said, we're married. I, I would be a little bit offended. It takes two people to say yes. God has said yes to you. And he's demonstrated that by his son coming to die on the cross. He loves me so much. I've brought some pictures tonight. I come from good heathen background. no spiritual heritage on either side of my family. My parents got a divorce when I was six years old, and mom thought a second marriage would be the answer to her problems as a single mom with four kids at home. It eventually wasn't, but during that dark period, she got quite ill. And the doctor said, you've either got to go to the hospital or somebody's going to need to care for you at home. With four kids at home to care for, she chose the second option. There was a lady who lived across the street who was a registered nurse. And out of the kindness of her heart, she walked across the street to administer some medication to my mother. And within the process of doing that, she gave my mother a Bible tract. Can I be honest with you? As a veteran pew sitter, 
Sometimes I think, a Bible tract? Are you, are you kidding me? People still do that? My mom's heart was so hungry. She said she put that tract on her bed and read it over and over and over again. That lady's name is Nancy Perry, and she's now with the Lord Jesus. This picture was taken at mom's 80th birthday. We threw a surprise party. Got to be careful doing that with 80-year-olds. <laughs> but I said, Nancy, I got to take a picture of you and me and my wife. She said, no, no. I said, yes, yes. <laughs> Just walking across the street. We had family friends who lived about five doors down in the same street. And Tom and Barb Warner had gone to Forest Home in California, and it was there that they received Christ, and they came back to the Midwest where we lived, and they didn't want to have, to have families drive all the way to Forest Home in California and hear the gospel. Tom's a man's man. He played for the U.S. Olympic hockey team. He had all daughters. And I always got the impression that he liked having me around because I was kind of a surrogate son to him. He saw my parents split up. He saw this whole explosion down the street. And after mom had remarried and figured out that the second marriage was not the answer to life's problems, she went to a Billy Graham crusade, and it was there that she received Christ. And then these lovely people invited our family to a family conference on Lake Geneva, Wisconsin in 1974. I understood camp. I didn't understand Christian. We went to church when it was necessary in Easter and, and Christmas. And we went to camp. And I can remember... They gave a devotional every morning and every evening. I hadn't a clue what they were talking about. But something deep inside of me was warmed and attracted to what he was saying. Although intellectually, I really didn't understand it. Do you know that Romans chapter 10 and verse 10 says that we believe with the heart? And the heart is the conscience. And the heart can discern what is right and wrong even at a young age even a child. And something in my heart was saying, this is the truth. And the longer I stayed around those people, the more I felt like I was only partially alive. And they had something that I didn't. And we had a lot of fun that week, but these people had more than fun. And on Thursday night, the director of that camp stood up like I am right now or like Steve did earlier this evening, and he just spoke honestly about his life. And when he said that he had a personal relationship with Jesus, it was clear as a bell to me. That's who you're missing. Not what, but who. And... Uh, he said, if you'd like to receive Christ tonight, you can stay behind and we'd love to talk to you. So I stayed behind and, and I sat next to a guy named Bill Gibson. Not Mel Gibson, Bill Gibson. 
Bill Gibson was 19 years old. He'd never been a counselor before. And I sat next to him, and for the first time in my life, I heard those words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in a very simple prayer, I came to the Lord Jesus not with anything else but my need for him. And I said, Lord Jesus, I want to give my life to you. And I want you to give your life to me. I brought a picture, kind of looks like leave it to beaver. Lenny Carlson is on the right-hand corner here in bare feet. He's now with the Lord. He passed away of cancer. Bill Gibson is the one with his knee up, the front row. And I'm in the back row standing, I think, the fifth one from the left. And I'll never forget sitting with Bill Gibson and praying a very simple prayer and then walking back to my little cabin. And God did exactly what he said he would in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. The Spirit of God witnessed with my spirit that I was a child of God. I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew Jesus had entered in my life. I could have embraced the world. I was so happy about that, I told my parents on the way home and I asked them to buy me a Bible. Because a sign of life is that you get hungry. And I got hungry for food, spiritual food. I don't know if I brought this picture. Is it another one? Turn back to the other one. No, no, the other black and white one, thank you. Bill Gibson's right there. He's, he's 19. I'm in the back row. I'm 13. I never saw Bill Gibson again. I wrote him a letter one time wanting to thank him for what happened that evening. Never got a response. 2009, 10 years ago, I was in Minneapolis and the phone rang. And my mom gives me the phone. Gabby and I were there. He said, hi, Peter. Reed speaking. Peter, this is Bill Gibson. Bill Gibson, <laughs> where are you? Well, I got an office out near the Mall of America. I said, just stay there. I'll be right there. So this next picture is me and Bill Gibson 35 years later. A couple of guys trying to suck in their gut. <laughs> and I was able to, t to tell them the rest of the story. It really is true. He planted the seed. And when you get the real thing, Jesus will be faithful to finish what he starts. This evening, I want to do what Bill did with me then. And all I want to do in the silence of prayer for somebody here is to pray a prayer to reflect the language of my heart that I had when I was 13 years old. And what happened was Bill prayed a prayer because I'd never prayed to God before. I wouldn't have known how to do it. And he prayed and I just followed with his words because I didn't know how to do it myself. And now, 40 plus years later, 50 plus almost, <laughs> 
God understands the language of the heart. And that's what he sees, because we believe with the heart. So I'd like to pray right now, and I'd like to just lead us in a very simple prayer. And if you're seated here this evening, and would like to join the family of God, you can come this evening on the basis of your own repentance. You don't have to come any other way than then you are right now. And you come empty-handed. And you say, Lord Jesus, I want you to save me. Save me. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you loved even me. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you came to take my place for what I deserve before a holy God as far as my sin is concerned. I can't bring anything to you but my need for forgiveness. Lord Jesus, I want to come this evening and turn 180 degrees And I don't want to live without you anymore. Lord Jesus, I come to allow you to do something for me. And I give you my life. Lord Jesus, I want to live differently, but I can't. But I'm going to thank you that you will begin to work in me by your spirit, which will allow me to live differently and pleasing before God and man. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you this evening that you'll never leave me or forsake me. And that I can leave this room this evening with the assurance that I'm your child. Lead me and teach me your ways for your own name's sake. Amen.